what we'll see to kind of like, gather our thoughts is first a sinister thought. A sinister thought. Uh, verse 1, look at it again. Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I think the idea is clear here. You know, if, if God receives glory for forgiving us, well then, are we doing him a favor? Are we providing him the opportunity to magnify himself when we sin? Well, that's foolishness. Let me illustrate. If a boy is caught stealing from his dad's wallet, well, he's in serious trouble, right? When his father summons him, his palms, they get clammy. His heart is thumping, and he's sweating bullets because he knows He's about to get a whooping. But let's say his dad, on this occasion, imparts grace. Son, I won't punish you this time. It's not because I condone what you did, but I'm choosing to be gracious. So you learn. Never do this again. What's the lesson here? Never do it again. And yet how whack would it be if the boy saw grace as license to sin, if he perverted it, if he thought, well, cool, I can steal again. Dad forgave me the first time, so he's bound to do it the second, third, fourth time around. That is abuse of his father's grace. That goes against his father's intention. And Paul is teaching the same lesson here to the children of God. To use God's grace as a blank check, as permission to sin goes against your Heavenly Father's intention. It is a sinister thought because the logic is backwards. The apostle here in verse 1 employs rhetorical questions to appeal to our senses. Because guess what? We know the answer. We know what's right. But do we, do you and I abuse grace? to rationalize our sin, to justify what should be unjustifiable. And we ponder to ourselves, well, no one's perfect. You know, God, God is supposed to forgive. That's who he is. And I, well, I'm a sinner. To err is only human. So we shrug our shoulders when we complain and covet. We hardly bat an eye and we click that link. We tell a bold lie we fudge on our, our taxes. Now, don't get me wrong. Sure, in this lifetime, we will sin. Even as saints, we blunder, fail, and fall into temptation, sometimes in big, egregious ways. But listen, there is a huge difference between someone who slips into the mud and a pig who wallows in it. There's a huge difference, you see, from someone who caves into sin Versus someone who celebrates it. And that's why Paul is specific here. He's not talking about whether sin is present. Did you get that? But whether it prevails. Whether it's a pattern. Are we to continue in sin? Is it continual? Is it characteristic of our lives? And Paul raises his voice in verse Two, he says, by no means, how can we who die to sin still live in it? 
Now, I don't follow a lot of TV shows, but one I used to watch was Shark Tank. And if you're not familiar with the premise of the show, it's pretty basic. Uh, you have these entrepreneurs who come on to pitch their businesses before wealthy venture capitalists, and they try to convince these rich sharks to invest in their companies for a certain amount of equity. And so the two sides go back and forth, they're bargaining until a deal is finally reached, or not. And one of the sharks is ironically nicknamed Mr. Wonderful for how unwonderful he is. He is a nasty person. He'll openly tear into the entrepreneur to explain to him how his business sucks or how their idea is stupid. And when Mr. Wonderful decides to reject a contestant, to shoot down their proposal, sometimes he'll send them off with four wonderful words. You're dead to me. Now when Mr. Wonderful utters those four words, it's not like the person automatically drops dead to the floor. No, the contestant is alive and well, don't worry. The expression merely signifies how the relationship is severed. There's no further conversation to be shared. There's no partnership between the two. To Mr. Wonderful, the entrepreneur is as good as dead. And Paul announces this. This is the response of a Christian towards sin. Now, when it comes marching in, persuading us on why we should strike up a deal, why we should do business together, we're to declare, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. There's no further conversation to be shared. There's no partnership between you and sin. Sin is to be good as dead. And yet, let's be honest, right? Many times, that is not our outlook. That is not our attitude and approach to sin, is it? No, we try to tiptoe that very fine line, getting as close to sin without actually committing it, without crossing over. Sure, we might not be flagrant or bold in our sin, but we're not really dead to it either. And when we go through life attempting to straddle the line, to play both sides, you know what we call that? We call that compromise. Well, Paul will not allow us to waffle between the two. He uses the strongest negation, by no means. And the rest of this passage is his presentation, his case against it. And you have to understand what the apostle is doing at this point. When Paul says to you that you have died to sin, he is not merely yelling in your ear. He's not ordering you around like a drill sergeant. You know, get a hold of your morality. Get it under control. I think we have a tendency to read these verses like this because we're impatient. We want to see immediate results. Okay, Paul, just tell me what I have to do and I'll dive in. I'll go get it. But the fight against sin is usually not fast. We grow over a lifetime as the gospel marinates and simmers in us. When Paul says, you have died to sin, he is not immediately thrusting and throwing us into the battlefield. He is preaching to prepare. He is fortifying us, 
bringing you to the fireplace of grace to warm your heart to Jesus. Stay focused because it's a marathon, not a sprint. You combat sinister thoughts with robust truths. Christian, Paul is reminding you of your identity, of your identity. You are dead to sin until you are rooted in this reality. Nourished by that truth, your effort to fight sin will be in vain. So yes, the command, the charge to cease sinning will come later. We'll see that. But we can't get ahead of ourselves. Before you can do anything about it, you need to be anchored in what Jesus has done. And this is the bulk of what Paul unpacks for us. He lays down the foundation in verses 3 to 10 before he calls us to arms and action in verses 11 to 14. You can just analyze it, analyze it briefly by peering at it. Do you see this dynamic, the flow of the apostles' argument? You are freed from sin by Christ so that in Christ you can fight sin. You see, you need to know this before you do this. Paul starts by showing us how we are freed. And he does this through a visual aid. Our second point from a sinister thought to a symbol of grace. A symbol of grace. Look at verse 3. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Three times in this passage, Paul appeals first and foremost to knowledge, what we know. As I just mentioned, Paul is convinced that true Christian living depends on true Christian learning, that deeds produce, are produced by doctrine, behavior formed by belief. And the first thing that the apostle brings before us is our knowledge of baptism. Baptism. That's not usually like our go-to, right, for, for fighting sin, for seeking to worship God. We don't just think of baptism, but why is it so central here? Well, it's a symbol of God's grace. You see, in Paul's day and age, baptism and conversion, they were basically synonymous, that's not to say that they're the same. One is the basis of salvation, the other the symbol. Conversion is primary, but in his day, baptism followed closely behind. The two were inseparable. If you became a Christian, the first step of obedience was and is to visibly express your commitment to Jesus through the ordinance of baptism. It's an outward expression of an inward reality. In the New Testament, being an unbaptized Christian was unheard of because baptism was the God-given way you pledged your allegiance to Jesus Christ. And to claim to be his disciple without obeying him in regards to baptism was inconsistent and absurd. Something's off there. It'd be like getting married but not wanting to wear a wedding ring becoming a professional baseball player, yet refusing to put on the team jersey. And baptism is the symbol of your vow, of your joyful commitment to team Jesus, if you will. 
It is the gospel in miniature. It retells the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the believer. When you are immersed into the water, it symbolizes how you are buried with Christ. You have died to sin similar to how Christ died because of sin. And when you emerge up from the water, it symbolizes how you have been raised with Christ. You now have a new life similar to how Christ resurrects in power. Baptism portrays the glories of salvation, dead to sin, alive to God. And that's why here at Lighthouse, we practice baptism by immersion because we believe it's the mode that best depicts the gospel. Now, if you weren't immersed, don't be offended, maybe just a little, but outside of baptism by immersion, you have an incomplete picture a symbol of the symbol of baptism. In fact, the word baptism literally means immerse. So not to be mean, but if you weren't immersed, you weren't at least technically, literally baptized. Now, you don't have to be embarrassed. Maybe you just didn't know. You know, I was originally sprinkled with water, not as a baby, but as an adult. But as I studied the scriptures, I came to the realization that I needed to get baptized to be immersed. And if you have more questions or you're interested in baptism, we can talk after service. I don't want to belabor and spend a lot of time on baptism because really that's not Paul's goal. The point isn't to elaborate on baptism because baptism itself is a pointer. It is a symbol of our solidarity. It portrays our union with Jesus, which is our third heading for tonight a solidarity with Christ. This becomes Paul's main theme that he hammers over and over in verses 5 to 10. Follow along. He says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will, uh, we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. I hope you pick that up, the emphasis. The preposition with is found so many times in these verses, it's easy to just kind of gloss over them. But for Paul, this is shorthand for what it means to be a Christian, that you are united with Christ. That's why to entertain sin is illogical. It doesn't make sense. It goes against your very existence and being as a believer. Because Paul has just disclosed, the old man has been crucified. All of who you are before you came to faith, your prior identity under Adam, your sin-enslaved life, all of it was crucified with Jesus. And yet somewhere along the way, we forget how comprehensive, how wholesale this is. I think sometimes, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes we carry uh, the misconception that being a Christian is about moral reform. 
And so we look at our old lives like it's a rickety house that just needs some minor repair and remodeling. You know, oh, now that I'm a Christian, I need to stop swearing, so I'll just patch up that part of my life. Or as a Christian, I shouldn't be easily irritated, so I'll fix that with some patience. Or I know I shouldn't be prideful, so let me just slap on some humility. But we need a bigger view, a larger vision. Because, friends, God is not in the business of flipping old homes. He demolishes the whole thing to the ground. God has to obliterate our hearts and start brand new. As C.S. Lewis says, God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It's not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but it's like turning a horse into a winged creature. When you come to faith in Christ, God isn't trying to improve the old you. Salvation isn't an updated version of who you are. No, when you become a Christian, you die. Hear that, you die. And what is raised with Christ by the power of his resurrection is a completely new creation. You get that? You see, the Christian motto isn't primarily about mental mantra or body, bodily discipline, like do better, work harder. No, the Christian's victory cry is, I am dead to sin, I am new in Christ, I am new in Christ, I am new in Christ. We ought to marvel at how Paul highlights this newness in verse 7. The word free here is the same word used throughout the book of Romans for justified, justification. The two ideas are inextricably linked. We are justified by faith in Christ, and this leads to freedom from the bondages of sin. How can you tell someone is found innocent in the courtroom? Well, not only in the reading of a verdict, but when the shackles come off, when the prisoner is no longer detained in jail, when he is running outside. And it would actually be puzzling for this pardoned person, for the innocent, to return and sit inside their prison cell when the door is wide open. He's free to go. He's liberated to live. Freedom from sin is the result of being justified. It is also evidence that you have been justified. Righteousness is more than a judicial verdict read by God. And it's certainly that, that you are no longer found guilty, declared innocent now in the divine courtroom. But those who are justified and in right standing with God demonstrated in transformed lives. Lives freed from the shackles of sin. The bonds are broken. The door flung wide open, united with Christ. You can say no to sin. You're dead to it, resurrected in newness of Jesus' life. After regaling us, invigorating us with these glorious gospel truths, Paul finally addresses how this changes everything. 
He gets to the nuts and bolts. The apostle is really practical. Our last and longest point for tonight, a strategy. A strategy against sin. Verse 11. So that conjunction, almost drawing a conclusion, on the basis of all that we've uncovered, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul introduces the first command of our passage. The first command. After 10 verses, here it is. Up to this point, actually, in the book of Romans, there have been very few imperatives. And that's intentional. That's also very telling. For five whole chapters, Paul has loaded us up with knowledge. He has built up a mountain of information, indicatives before giving us imperatives. Why? Because knowledge is power. I know that sounds cheesy, like something an elementary school teacher would say, but it's biblical. Only a proper grasp of the gospel will lead to properly living out the gospel. This is the only environment where it is safe to give commands. This is the only context where imperatives aren't mishandled as a way to boast about ourselves, to promote our own self-righteousness. Notice the level of care with which Paul transitions. Even his first command is a callback to what we know. He says, consider, consider yourselves dead to sin. Consider it done. It's the idea of reckoning, calculating, that you deliberate and you decide. And I know this seems far-fetched to us because it goes against what you and I feel. Let's be blunt. There's not a day that goes by where you don't blow it. You gossip about a coworker. You linger too long over a lustful thought. You belittle a friend. You're depressed by your discontentment. You feel so beat up by sin, relapsing into the same cycles, hopeless, discouraged. You don't feel dead to sin. In fact, you feel alive to it. And that's why this first application can't be ignored. It's as if Paul is screaming at us, forget your feelings. You need something more solid and certain than feelings. Find your footing on what you know. The resolve isn't, I will try harder to die to sin. Paul is gripping you by the collar. That's not good enough. The resolve is, I am dead to sin. Consider, believe, know, and then live out this identity. I am dead to sin. I don't have to succumb to it. I can say no. So here's Paul's strategy. The first point of attack is waged in the mind. In verse 11, the apostle inserts us into this glorious passage. You've been placed in Jesus Christ so that all that Paul has unraveled in the previous verses holds true for you. Read your name into the text. That as you comb over it, you're supposed to insert yourself. Verse 9, Alan, being raised from the dead, death no longer has dominion over him. Verse 10, for the death Alan died, he dies to sin, but the life Alan lives, he lives to God. 
Paul then moves from the mental into the physical realm. He leads us to the second step of his strategy in verses 12 and 13. He says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Paul uses language associated with kings and soldiers, rulers and subjects. That before you were a Christian, you used all your faculties to serve your sin. Your tongue was a nasty whip. Your hands inflicted pain on others. Your legs carried you towards temptation. Your eyes objectified others. You bowed your knees to worship self and to gratify your flesh. But then Jesus came. Jesus came and delivered you from the domain of darkness into his glorious kingdom. And now that you are freed from sin, you're devoted to a new master. You're to present all of who you are under the service of this king. In fact, the word for instrument can also be translated weapons. Weapons to reinforce the imagery. Rally the troops. Marshal and deploy everything for this purpose. Use your personality. Use your time. Use your relationships. Use your intellect, your talents. Use your gifts. Use your hands and feet. Use all that you have, all that you are, at the disposal of your king, in the service of his gospel. Look, the truth is, you're less likely to sin when you are busy serving others and loving God. That's not rocket science. The application isn't difficult. The difficulty lies in whether you're serious enough, whether you're serious enough to follow through. So let me humbly ask, Christian, are you fighting your sin? Are you fighting your sin or feeding it? Perhaps the reason there is little fight is because you are treating your sin like a domestic pet instead of a deadly enemy. You know you waste too much time online. You, know, you surf all the websites, watch endless YouTube videos, scroll through the social media feeds, all into the wee hours of the night. It's no wonder you don't have the presence of mind or desire to spend time with God in his word and in prayer. You're coddling your laziness like a pet instead of waging war on sin. You know you treasure the things of this world far too much, and money has a tight grip on your life. You're constantly dreaming about the next pay raise or checking your bank account on a daily basis. The decisions you make are ultimately governed by the state of your finances. So then, should you be surprised that giving to the church is hard or that you never feel the inclination to pay for another's meal or display any modicum of generosity? Why? You're coddling your love for money like a pet instead of waging war on sin. Or maybe you know you relish in bitterness and enjoy the high of hating. You're so fixated on yourself, your wounds, 
You'll replay over and over again how someone else has wronged you in order to scratch the itch and justify your anger, your resentment. It's no wonder you're a petty person, so sensitive when slighted, quick to lash out. You're coddling your bitterness like a pet instead of waging war on sin. You refuse to fight, and so you feed. But Paul has made great effort in this passage to show us how Jesus redeems everything. It's not just you're dead to sin. That's only half the story. He tells us you have been resurrected in Christ. You are alive to God. Are you not only rehearsing this, but are you building your life around it? This is crucial. This is pivotal. You see, it's not just the putting off of sin. But now you put on what's righteous, what's becoming of a believer. Starve your sins so you can feed your affections for God, so that you can awaken holy appetites, godly ambitions. This is the strategy by which we do battle. You can't just play defense. At some point, you must move forward, be proactive, and go on offense. This is Ephesians 4, where Paul describes the new resurrected life, that in place of stealing, do honest work. In place of corrupting talk, speak words that impart grace. In place of wrath, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Good habits help mold godly character. So put yourself Put yourself in situations to succeed. Surround yourself with influences that will inundate your mind and refresh your heart to the glories of the gospel. You know, seek accountability, even if it means giving up a free evening. Read the word, even at the cost of throwing away your computer. Give of your time and resources to serve even if it means making sacrifices. At least, at least if it hurts, you know you're alive. Now, I know this is pretty intense, and it may all be a bit overwhelming. Seems like an uphill battle, right? You wonder to yourself, well, where do I start? There's so much sin to fight. There's so many areas in my life that I need to mature in. My exhortation would be, take any step. Take any step. Because one inch in the right direction still moves you towards God. Paul returns full circle in verse 14 to comfort us, to persuade us to persevere. He condenses it all down and summarizes in verse 14. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. When you play sports or like the game of basketball, the makeup of your team will greatly impact and affect your, your thoughts on whether you're going to win or not, your chances at coming out as, uh, with, a, with a W. You know, if you look at your team and you notice a bunch of smaller, punier, unathletic guys, uh, well, then you think that winning the game is quite grim. 
But if you look at your team and you notice, oh, look, it's LeBron James and Alan Tsai. Like, you know you're going to win. I'm not saying because of which one, but you look at your team and it seems that the odds are in your favor. And it doesn't leave you petrified. No, in fact, it enables you to then compete with vigor, with excitement, with confidence. Verse 14 is Paul's guarantee that the win is yours, not because you are an incredible athlete, because you are a super godly Christian, no, but because Jesus is on your team. He's already defeated sin. His resurrection is sin's white flag. You can press on with vigor, excitement, and confidence because the battle has already been won. You're no longer under sin, but under grace. Do you understand that, Christian? The power of sin is to hold forth the law and show you how you don't measure up. That the devil storms in, pointing and accusing, guilty here, imperfect on this point, you are a sinner. Satan takes the good law of God and beats you down by underlying where you've broken God's commandments. But his strategy is his own undoing. Because when we are defeated, when we are silenced by the law, that's when someone else speaks on our behalf. We have an advocate, a savior in Jesus Christ. As Paul will later exclaim in Romans 10:4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Or as, as Paul mentions elsewhere in Galatians, Jesus was born under the law. Why? To redeem those under the law so that we might be adopted as children. See, the son doesn't work to win the favor and affection of his father. The son is free to work, stumble though he may, precisely because he already has the love of the father. And in Christ, united with him, we are all sons. We are free to fight sin because we are secure in God's love and grace. So fight. Fight with all your might and trust that even when you falter, you fall under grace. The late Jerry Bridges wrote, Our worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. Let's pray. God, grace. In one word, you package the entire gospel, and you show us how wonderful, how mighty, how amazing it is to know you, to know your love that would send Jesus Christ into the world to die on our behalf while we were sinners, that we too, by repenting and believe, by our union with him, we can stand confident. We can walk in the newness of life, saying no to sin because we are alive just as Christ is. Lord, I pray that we would bank ourselves upon this truth, that the gospel would not be something we merely circulate cerebrally, but Lord, it would circulate in our hearts. It would be the 
the blood and the life flow by which we live, Lord, that we can have hope that we would press on and run the race faithfully. For we are never alone, but we are in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.